Hello, 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 and uh, welcome back to the fourth episode of the Slimcast with me, Ginger Slim, uh, or Tim, if that's more preferable. Um, I hope you're all surviving out there. It's uh, it's Wednesday as I record this, and the sun is shining, albeit intermittently which helps everything um, it's about 11am I've just eaten a brie and pastrami bagel which I thoroughly recommend it's my new favourite food um, and I've already cut down two trees this morning which is uh, yeah not a bad morning not a bad start um, not much to report since we last met. As I said, the days don't really change much here. The highlight of my week is going to Lidl <laughs> to do the shop. Um, <clears throat> uh, although we drove to Dublin actually to pick up my friend's new car last week, which was quite nice, just outside Dublin. Um, but yeah, other than that, fairly uneventful. Um, I know last week I said that I was going to talk to you about some um, past events in my life in this episode, which uh, I think should be quite entertaining. But um, in the interim, I've discovered that it's Mental Health Awareness Week. And so I'm going to um, use the opportunity to speak about another topic that's very close to my heart, um, which is mental health. Um, before I start that, I know that Mental Health Awareness Week is not without its faults and its criticisms, many of which are valid. Um, it is somewhat of an empty gesture on the government's part when they are the ones who have decimated the mental health services and left a lot of vulnerable people without the care and support that they need. Um, and I know that at the moment that's more apparent than ever as we've come out of lockdown and people are dealing with the horrors of COVID on top of their usual mental anguish. Um, I am aware of that, but I am also a firm believer in taking every opportunity to speak up about mental health and um, as people who follow me and who know me will already know I do not limit these conversations to periods like this. I speak openly about my own struggles and my own journey um, and have done for the last few years um, but if more people are talking about it now then that's as good as opportunity as any to, to join in the conversation. And just to remind people that they're not alone and that they're definitely not alone in their suffering. Um, and again, to use the opportunity to tell the government to sort it out and to, you know, get on with the fucking work that needs to be done to rectify the situation they've put us in. Um, which is a dire one when it comes to, I mean, most health services are struggling, but mental health in particular has seen its services decimated over the years, especially under Tory rule. Um, so yeah, I am well aware of that, but I just wanted to address that at the beginning before I started. Um, and also I will say that this is a very personal take as with most of these podcasts, my reflections will be personal ones. My, um, they will delve into personal experiences I've had, same as the hip hop one did, same as the books one did. Um, because I don't consider myself an expert on any of these things, and I'm not in a position to give anyone, you know, solid advice 
um, beyond what I've done myself and what I've learned from my own mistakes, for want of a better word, and for my own for my own experiences, um, good and bad. So, um, but then again, hopefully that's some of the appeal to listen to this is that it's a very relatable thing for me, and I like to think that makes my words more, I don't know, gives them more gravitas and emotion. Um, I'm talking shit, but <laughs> um, in the little videos I've done in the past, my walks in the woods, I used to talk about a variety of things around your mental health. Um, some of the feedback I had around those was from that point of view that it was a personable and relatable delivery and so I'm hoping to sort of yeah bring that back with these podcasts um, and as always I'm starting at the beginning with um, a breakdown of my own relationship with mental health and my own journey in that regard um, I'm 40 now, 41 this year, and I've been struggling with these things for the last 23, 24 years. Um, I left school after my GCSEs, so 16, 17, and... Um, Apologies for the sniffing, by the way. I, it's one thing I try to minimise, but um, due to a lengthy relationship with cocaine in the past, there was not a day gone by in the past 12 years, probably, where I haven't blown my nose. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's you know, there are worse repercussions for that, for that sort of addiction, but um, it is quite an annoying side effect. Uh, and I apologise, but I will try to keep it to a minimum. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I left school after my GCSEs. I was promised a job. Um, I wasn't very fond of education. I did alright in my GCSEs, but I wasn't... I was very much eager to get away from school. Um, and I was promised a job in the Saturday job that I had, I promised a full-time job, which then failed to materialise after I quit school, much to the horror of my mum and dad. Um, and then I was sort of in a position where I was, well, yeah, abandoned, it felt like. And I put myself there, which didn't help. So I've always been someone who quite easily takes on guilt um, and I think that I would say that was where <clears throat> the seeds of my depression were sown um, obviously I didn't know what it was back then but that was when I first started experiencing the feelings that later came on in abundance um, my mum had suffered with depression as well um, and she died um, a couple of years after that when I was 19 um, that was quite sudden um, I will talk about that maybe in another podcast um, I actually wrote a piece about her death and my grief recently which is on my medium um, page which I will leave a link to in the uh, in the notes for this episode um, if you want to read that it's quite a very personal account of what happened and it's quite detailed and honest, brutally honest in parts so uh, you know read it if you can uh, manage to read those things and if you can't then just uh, yeah, give it a wide berth for now um, but yeah my mum died when I was 19 and she'd raised me on her own until I was 8 or 9 so we were very close um, she was very protective of me, um, and 
yeah, so it was it was a, it was a horrible experience when she died, obviously, um, and that definitely exacerbated what was what was already lingering in my mind, um, the dark thoughts and the and the sorrow, just you know, constant sorrow. Um, and I went off the rails to use a cliched phrase, um, not. Not to my knowledge at the time, I was having a great time, but I got quite heavily into drugs. Um, up until that point, I smoked weed and that was it. I was quite scared of drugs. Um, I was quite a nervous kid. And so drugs and things like that just scared me, really. I, I bought into all the sort of media horror stories. Um, and then my friends started taking ecstasy and it seemed like a very fun thing to try and I definitely got the sort of um, attitude that I was, you know, you only live once and life is too short and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I got into ecstasy quite heavily. <clears throat> and as I've now learned um, through repeated episodes like that, I have a very addictive nature. Um, I think I've mentioned that in the past. So I'll just have some coffee. And, um, yeah, I was, it wasn't long before I was quite reliant on those little pills to give me the enjoyment I needed in life. And things got out of hand. Um, this went on from like, yeah, she died in 2000 and this went on until 2003. Um, I mean, beyond that, but it was very much a concentrated effort in 2000, 2003 in Bristol with people who, you know, like lovely people on the face of it, but we were all very bad influences on ourselves, on each other. And it was just this repetitive cycle of <clears throat> debauchery and, and drug taking and all the things that came with it. Um, and then I moved to Nottingham in 2003, there was a girl I was going out with who was studying there, so I moved up there. I uh, moved into a house with her um, and some other people. It was like a student house. Um, and the partying continued. Um, I was the only one who wasn't a student. I was working full-time, but that wasn't sustainable. With the lifestyle I was leading, which again became a recurring theme throughout my life, um... And, uh, yeah, it was around that time that I think some of those people persuaded me to get a mental health assessment done. Um, I don't know how easy that is to get nowadays. This would have been about 2004. Um, but back then it was, you know, it was, it was a thing that was, that was manageable and achievable. Um, so I went for my mental health assessment. Um, I'm not sure how honest I was about certain things. Um, I'm not sure how much I wanted to be there. Um, which, if you've ever been through those sort of things, is not conducive to good results. You need to sort of be um, ready yourself. You need to want it yourself. This goes for anything like therapy. Um, any sort of support, really, um, rehab, things like that. If you're not ready and you're not prepared to give what's needed to get the results that are needed, then those results won't give a true indication of what's wrong, necessarily. Having said that, uh, there's a lovely lady I spoke to from the NHS, um, she recommended that I have long-term psychotherapy and she put me on antidepressants for the first time. Um, she put me on fluoxetine, which is more commonly known as Prozac, which is one of the most common place antidepressants and has been since the 80s, maybe 70s. Um, part of the SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, I believe. I'm still not even sure what that means, but uh, 
yeah, it's, it's the most sort of common family of, of antidepressants. And um, I couldn't afford psychotherapy then, but um, in the years that followed my mum's death, I lost three more members of my family on, on my mum's side in quite quick succession. Uh, my uncle and then both my mum's parents, my grandparents. Um, that was all within about three years of my mum dying, which, you know, was just only added to the sort of, yeah, whatever I was going through. Because it wasn't, it wasn't, as I said, I was having a lot of fun in the face of it, but all these things were bubbling away on the surface and with the exacerbation of, of constant serotonin depletion through the, uh, you know, binges of ecstasy over weeks-long periods. It was, um, it was not a sustainable lifestyle, more of a time bomb for those sort of things. And, um, but yeah, after the, my grandparents died, my uncles sold their cottage in Somerset. None of us were very rich from our family, but um, my grandparents had sort of earned a modest living as teachers before their retirement, and they'd sold their house in Bristol and retired to country. Um, and they sold their cottage after their death, and um, their share of... Uh, my mum's share of the inheritance was split between me and my younger brother. Um, and I ended up getting quite a substantial amount of money, some of which... I used on psychotherapy, but not, I think I went for maybe three months, maybe, not even that, but by that time I had um, developed quite a substantial cocaine addiction, so as you'll probably discover, I basically have went from, I spent about 20 years just addicted to something that was bad for me in one form or another, um, but cocaine has been the biggest, biggest um, enemy for me in that regard, um, and it's still my biggest temptation, I'm 10 months clean now, um, but uh, yeah, that was after a sort of 15 year struggle with it, um, and by that point I was doing between anywhere between three and five grams a day um, I split up with my girlfriend and my friends finished uni and this is still in Lyingham um, and I sort of found myself on my own not you know not totally on my own but a lot of the people that I cared about had moved away and I had a lot of money in the bank about 30 grand in total. And um, I grew up poor and that, I'd never had that much money in my life, never seen that much money in my life. Um, and it just seemed like an endless amount, <laughs> um, which of course is absolute bullshit. Um, but I very quickly, um, I found I found a very good dealer at the time and cocaine was a lot cheaper back then. I used to get an eighth for like 120 quid three and a half grams which nowadays would cost you I don't know, at least twice that um, and yeah I was probably getting one of them a day sometimes more and yeah it was sort of a party lifestyle for a, for a small fraction of that time um, and by the end I was sort of doing lines on my own in my room at 6am um, somehow holding down a full-time job at the time for a well-known energy company um, and yeah doing lines in the toilet on my break not just any or just constantly going to the toilet um, I got found out by my boss luckily my boss was a friend um, but yeah all this was having a very damaging effect on me I tried to have psychotherapy but this was while I was dealing with the, this cocaine addiction and um, it made me lie to her, um, my therapist, about 
what I was doing in terms of my drug use. Um, she obviously was, wanted me to stop and would say I'd stopped and was still doing lines in the toilet before I came into the session and excusing myself halfway through to go and do more. And it was just a, a constant strain on my on my brain and on every sort of facet of my life because addiction does make you lie and deceive yourself as well as other people around you. Um, and so my point is it did, it did me no good at all. I don't think, um, if anything, it did me a lot of harm because it sort of opened up traumas that I'd been unwilling to confront, like the death of my mum, how my mum was as a mother, um, and very touchy subjects which I ripped open and then quit therapy so they were just like open wounds then um and the drug taking um it was all having this horrible damaging detrimental effect on my mental health um and so I moved to London that was my that's often my answer for these things um I think I'd run out of money by that point um I remember cashing my last check 10 grand cashing it because I wanted to buy more drugs um, and thinking right this is you've got to make this last and this is ridiculous and then it was gone and I owed people money and yeah it was all very very stupid but um, yeah I met a girl via MySpace this is a girl that got me into writing actually uh, moved to London and um, yeah things were, were happy there for a time but we were both struggling with our own depression and anxiety and she was she had her own demons that she was battling and I had my own. It was a very codependent relationship, which is again not sustainable and not healthy for either party. Um so that went on, that would have been two thousand seven I moved down there and I was there for quite a long time, seven years. I think we were together four four years, maybe five, um, and things sort of got worse and worse, I, I, I was not doing cocaine and I was not an addict as such, but it was still something I, I later dabbled in when I started hanging around with some guys in the job I got who were heavily into it, and so I started doing it again recreationally and then doing it in work again, and just a familiar story that kept coming back around in my life. Um, and I reached my lowest point that I've ever reached in probably 2014. Ended up sort of homeless. Um, and I had been involved with um, a girl who was very, very, uh, um, yeah, very ill. Uh, mentally ill um, and she was and I'm not apportioning any blame on her because it wasn't her fault but the things that I went through in that relationship were not were not healthy for for me at all um, and I was very suicidal um, I'd had a sort of string of toxic relationships um, and yeah, I just found myself in a very dark place, the darkest place I've been in my life and that I've ever been in my life since. Um, and I never, I never want to go back there. Uh, that's the one positive thing to come out of rock bottom and hitting rock bottom is that you know that you never want to go back there. And I, I mean, again, it's slightly cliched for people to say you have to see it before you can. Um, before you can move away from it. But uh, it, it is true that once you've been there, you don't ever want to repeat that phase, that phrase, that phrase, that phase again. Um, so I ended up, yeah, in a very dark place in London and my younger brother, God bless his heart, was very much my only sort of ally. Um, I sort of estranged myself from my family. 
was quite ashamed and angry and the whole world of emotions surrounding them. Nothing, not through any sort of fault of theirs, again, just things I built up in my own head and projecting onto them. Um, and I sort of cut myself off from my friends and I was always asking for people for money and it was just, I was just not a very nice person to be around and it was very difficult for people to support me and to stand by me, um, which at the time I found absolutely heartbreaking. And again, it used to anger me, it used to fuel the rage even more, but thinking, how can these people desert me now? Um, but the thing with toxicity is that it's very hard for you to understand how that is affecting other people and even to see it in yourself during the moment. Um, and it's taken me a long time to come to terms with my own toxicity back then, especially in relationships like my relationship with the girl that I met, uh, that I moved to London for, um, at the time, you know, I blamed her for a lot of it and the problems she was going through and me, me having to support her. But in all seriousness, I was the toxic one in that relationship. I lied to her about a lot of things, about our financial situation, um, about my employment situation. I covered things up from her. Um, we were evicted two or three times, which I kept from her until the last moment. You know, I was a very difficult person to be around and all under the sort of pretenses of me trying to protect her from from the truth and in fact it was just you know a very damaging way of doing things um so yeah when when people say to you or when people used to say to me you know you've got to keep yourself away from negative people and, and i was a negative person at that time and i would think well you can't just abandon me um but now that's what i do i, I make sure i keep myself away from toxic people and negative people because you have to protect your own sanity and I think that's a very important part of maintaining your mental health you know be there be there for them when you can and to a degree that's manageable but do not sacrifice your own mental health for theirs because then you're no good to anyone um and that's something that took me a long time to learn. A lot of these things are things I took a long time to learn, as you'll hear. Um, but yeah, I ended up in a, in a dark place and my, my younger brother was my only sort of connection to the real world. Um, and I was sleeping on a friend's sofa. I mean, not even he was a, he was a colleague, he wasn't even really a, a close friend. He was kind enough to let me sleep on a sofa after I had a couple of nights on the street, but it was, yeah, not nothing to be too alarmed about. But anyway, my brother finally got me to come back to Bristol. It would have been 2015, I think. Um, and I was terrified of coming back to Bristol. It was a city full of ghosts and trauma and people I wanted to avoid for various reasons, whether I was embarrassed or afraid of them. You know, I got myself into a lot of shit before I left with some not very nice people. Um, people who were in prison at the time that I left and I knew they were out now. And it was a very, um, a very traumatizing thing for me to do in, in, in itself while dealing with the trauma that I was already going through. But, you know, I did it. I came back, I reconnected with a friend who um, had been a part of my old life before I'd left so in hindsight again not my wisest choice but I decided to move in with him more because I didn't really have a choice an option of where to live um, I couldn't get a um, I had a job but I couldn't get um, I had really bad credit so you know, trying to get um, a reference or like my, all my landlords hated me in London, so, you know, trying to get the references needed to rent a place through the usual channels was, was nigh on impossible. So he offered me a sublet in his flat. Um, and for a while, things were improving mentally, um, but he was also um, a heroin addict. 
and so the living conditions weren't ideal. He did he did a very good job of you know not ever doing it in front of me. I knew I knew I knew he was an addict. I'd known he was an addict back in when I first met him. It was something he battled again through all those years. Um, but he was very much into it when I was living with him. I lived with him for like two years, I think. Um, and yeah, again, that was a very traumatic experience in its own way, and it came with its own setbacks and letdowns and problems that had to be manoeuvred and had its own effect on my mental health again. You know, I wasn't um, something I'd never been in the past was a drinker, a big drinker. I didn't drink for, I don't know when I, I didn't drink at all when I was in my 20s, I don't think. Um, just never appealed to me, didn't, didn't agree with it. Um, and then I started drinking and as I said before, my addictive nature kicked in and I just, you know, it was, it's drink, it's there, it's all the time, it's everywhere, you can get it whenever you want it. So I started drinking a lot, um, drinking a lot of vodka, um, and that was, again, a coping mechanism. I got pulled into my job by, by my manager because people complained about alcohol on my breath. I was drinking at work. Um, it's all these all toxic coping mechanisms, you know, that I that I used to... to to support the darkness, you know, to get through the bad times, um, when in fact it was just making everything worse, which is common knowledge and might seem like the most obvious thing in the world to those listening and to those of you who have, you know, maintained your sanity throughout the years. But again, in the moment when you're reluctant to face reality, these crutches will be the most appealing things to you and so you will turn to them whenever whenever necessary and that necessity becomes more and more frequent as you use them more and more because you know your dependency grows so again it's another vicious cycle which is very hard to break um and yeah then i got into cocaine use again um I moved out of his flat eventually um, into a flat in Bedminster, into a house in Bedminster. Um, and again, my my addictive nature fucked things up for me and I got back into cocaine. And I fell in with a group of friends who, again, very nice and I love them to bits and I still love them. But um, it was a very toxic environment in that respect. And... Um, and I'm very weak when it comes to cocaine and you know I was back to doing a gram or two a week maybe three you know doing a half gram on a Tuesday night while sitting in their front room playing board games <laughs> like just ridiculous shit and um yeah this is this is like 2018 this is in few years ago and that went on for a couple of years um, and then it got to the end of 2019 and I had lost the place I was living in because of my stupidity again and my dependency and my drug use through, you know, blowing all my wages on on drugs and not being able to afford my rent and and um I needed to escape. Um but in a more healthy way this time I was starting to see more clearly things I needed to do to sort of protect myself. And um a very nice friend of mine um who I met through music, we never actually met before but she reached out to me and um, online and said she was working on a farm on a farm in Kent um, for the summer 
uh, picking nuts, cob nuts, and uh, she offered me a place down there. So I, I think within about two weeks, I was down there and spent about two months picking nuts with her, um, just me and her predominantly on this farm. The farmer was there, but he was a rich man who lived quite far away, a couple of fields away in his own house, and we lived in caravans on the um, on the actual farmland. And so that gave me the sort of time to to face up to a lot of my problems and face up to a lot of my demons and work through them. Um, as I've learned over the years and this is one thing I will suggest to people is that removing yourself from a situation is one of the best ways to to bring it to an end. I'm, I'm very much a product of my environment, not in the sort of nature versus nurture sense, but in the fact that if I'm in an environment where there is temptation, then I will succumb to it. And so if I remove myself from there, then um, it gets easier for me to face up to what I've been dealing with. And I'm also a person who gets bored of these things quite easily. Um, with taking ecstasy, it got to the point where I was just sick of it. Like, the taste of pills, the thought of the taste of pills made me feel sick. Um, cigarettes. I smoked for 15 years and then stopped smoking because I was just sick of it. I was having cigarettes and getting halfway through them and thinking this is absolutely disgusting. Um, and even cocaine to a point when I, when I removed myself from that situation, um, you just reflect on the insanity of it, the, the stupidity of, of, of the drug itself. Like, you know, of all the drugs you can take, that is just the most pathetic the least worthwhile you know I'm a firm believer in in the usefulness of hallucinogenics and you know even we to a certain extent to ease the worries of some people um, again that doesn't work for me I've switched to CBD bud now which has been a great help um, but yeah it's just like a pointless pointless drugs that you know fleeting high for a vast amount of money um easily 100 quid in an evening gone um and for what to feel slightly more confident which is you know great but it ultimately turns you into a bit of a prick as i'm sure any of you who have spent time with cokeheads will recognize or even of yourselves from your own experiences with the drug but yeah, it's definitely not a worthwhile pastime to be pursuing. And when you remove yourself from its clutches and, and, and reflect on what, what it actually does for you and how it makes you feel, it's a very stupid idea. And not to mention the, the psychological effects of it. So, yeah, that's when I, I started um, sort of trying to learn to manage my mental health better and deal with my emotions in a in real time um, and reflect on what they mean as, as they happen um, which is a part of mindfulness um, and that was a great relief for me and a sort of epiphany these these things will again seem obvious to some of you um, but I was very reluctant about seeking help um, or stubborn maybe I'm not sure what the right word is but it was definitely something that I was yeah not not actively seeking and so when I finally came to it a lot of these things I thought to myself well, why why had I not thought of this before um, but again you need to be in the right place in the right space and time to do these things and to try to implement into your lives and if anyone out there is suffering and is thinking well how do you you know how do you implement these things then I promise you it is there is a way and it will come to you um, and even just knowing that these these methods and these practices and these solutions to a, to a degree exist is some sort of hope 
I hope anyway. Um, and so, yeah, since then I've just been doing what I can to try and minimise the the pressures I put on my mental health. Um, that's why I moved here. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing now in Ireland. Um, lockdown was starting to get to me and people starting to get to me. Um, and just England as a whole was starting to get to me politically and socially. It was just an ugly place for me at that time. Um, I mean, it still is. When I look at the news and things like that, but um, yeah, all, all those things are having an impact on me. Um, and so I moved here, um, but that came with its own set of problems, which, which you know, you don't see at the time, um, because you know I, I didn't move to, move here to get away from anyone in particular, just people in general, but. Um, and over lockdown I, I had sort of got used to spending time on my own which was something that I used to be quite fearful of and it was quite damaging to me um, to be on my own because I would you know end up consuming whatever was nearby to kill the loneliness but lockdown gave me a chance to, to sort of come to terms with that and I ended up quite enjoying my own company but um but once the option to remove people was, so sorry, once the option to see people was removed, as it has been here, because um, I'm in the middle of nowhere, um, it's a whole other, whole other ball game. Um, and it's the same in in lockdown. You know, people who are introverts and um, isolationists anyway, um, and like spending time on their own. At the time, at the beginning of lockdown, thought, well, this is this is perfect, this is heaven for me. But I think people then also realised that because the option had been taken away for them to actually see people if they wanted to, it became more of a crisis. And, um, yeah, that's something that I've, I've had to deal with here. But because of the time and the work I've put into my strategies for dealing with my mental health since well over the last couple of years I'm now in a position to deal with things more rationally um, I think one of the things to remember is that there is no cure for depression um, it will most likely always be there with you um i'm talking about clinical depression not not periods of depression you go through for valid life occurrences and events um feeling depressed can be a completely normal emotional reaction to things like the loss of someone or the loss of your job or the loss of a relationship or you know things that should make you feel sad and it's very it's very handy to be able to recognise the difference between the two. Um, and that's ultimately why some of the NHS systems of identifying um, mental health issues are flawed because, um, I mean, again, I haven't done this for a long time, but in the times that I did go to see my doctor about my mental health problems the form they gave me to fill in was something that covered the last two weeks of my life and it was a simple sort of um yes no form or how 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 have you been feeling have any of these feelings um occurred within you over the last two weeks and it didn't go into any detail about why they might have occurred it just simply broke it down to a very simple set of answers that could be then analyzed by a computer and given a a result which uh, which diagnosed your apparent depression or whatever, um, and so that's why people then ultimately end up getting misdiagnosed and put on antidepressants, which then become a um, a reliance in their life which they don't actually need, but they become 
reliant on. And so, yeah, there are definitely flaws within that system. Um, antidepressants for me, sorry, I will just go back to those because I should have spoken about them. Um, as with everything, I believe mental health and depression, especially, it's while there are very similar hallmarks which will be familiar to everyone, it's also a very personal experience and it's formulated by personal experiences and so the things that work for one might not work for another and the things that work for you might not work for me um, and depressants I took for 12 years straight I think um, after the Prozac I was on Citalopram for quite a long time and then I was on Sertraline um, for about a year and that took me to my darkest point and I thought to myself what what are they actually doing if I'm at this stage now um, and so I stopped taking cold turkey and it made no difference to my to my stability at all um, but that is just me and I know that they do help people and I know they help people maintain a sort of regular lifestyle um, a regular routine within their lives so if you're diagnosed and prescribed them then I would say it's definitely worth a try but do not become reliant on them actually listen to your body and listen to your mind and yeah try to make up um, your own decision about their benefits um, so yeah there is there is no cure as such for, for depression it is a matter of learning to coexist with it, learning to live alongside it, um, and then to manage it. And that's, you know, that seems a terrifying prospect when you're in the throes of severe depression because you want that release, you want that, you want that escape, you want it to be over. Um, and someone telling you that it's never going to be over is not necessarily what you want to hear, but you also will not I spent a long time looking for a cure um, and that's worse because it's a, it's a it's a it's a pointless errand that is uh, just brings you more frustration and, and hopelessness because it's ultimately um, going to end in more disappointment so I think coming to terms with the fact that you just need to be able to learn to live with it um, is is beneficial and it's a hard thing to do and a hard thing to implement into your life but um, ultimately it is it can be satisfactory and I am now in a position where I think that on a day-to-day -day basis I am managing um, and when I do have bad periods, I had a couple of bad days recently, um, I now know that they are just that. They are a bad period that I'm going through. And I will come out of it. Um, and so you just do what you can to, to get through it, whatever that entails. Um, as I said before, I'm not the toxic coping mechanisms um, and even things like caffeine, like if you, if you if you suffer from anxiety, caffeine is not your friend. Um, it will just exacerbate the the feeling of anxiousness. Um, the same with cannabis. That's how I. That's you know I used that for years and years and years. I think I smoked for twenty years, non-stop, and um, yeah, it just it made everything worse to a degree. Um, so yeah just be aware of the things that, that you enjoy that are not necessarily seen by society as harmful um, less so with cannabis more so with caffeine and, and alcohol um, alcohol is quite fun to a degree um, but 
again, too much of anything is um, is bad for you. And once you like, if you if you're doing something so constantly, even if you even if you're drinking every week um, or a few times a week, that's enough for it to for you not to be able to notice what it's like when you're not drinking. And so, if you are feeling, if you do have this sort of general malaise over you, it's very hard to see that when you're constantly in that mindset. So, again, this one of the benefits of taking yourself out of the situation. Um, I'm now in a position where I'm drinking maybe once or twice a week, and even now I'm having like one can of cider. Um, I'm not drinking spirits anymore for the most part. And so, if I have like two cans, I feel the effects of my mental health the next day. Um, and that's just two cans. I was drinking four or five bottles of strong cider and having a few shots of tequila before. So, yeah, it's um, it's hard to see these things when you're in the moment. Um, and other coping mechanisms that are healthy for me, um, if I'm going through a period where things feel hopeless, then um, I try to make a note of all the things in my life that I'm grateful for. Um, writing things down is another good one. Um, so, yeah, making a note of the things that I'm grateful for, even the little things like you know, having food in my belly and having had a, a night with a roof over my head. Um, be thankful for the people you've got around you. Uh, just be thankful for the birds, <laughs> the sky. Be thankful for the the trees you can go and hug. Um, there's always something there in your life, no matter how bad it is, you can be thankful for. And focusing on those things can bring a sense of of peace and gratitude to an otherwise dire situation. Um, and that goes for catastrophizing as well, which is something I'm an expert in. <laughs> um, catastrophizing is thinking the absolute worst about a situation before it's actually happened. Um, so this ties in with, you know, learning to not worry about the things that you cannot control. So if you send an email, um, for example, which, you know, um, and you're worried about the reply or why they haven't replied, these are things you cannot control. So, again, it's, it's hard to... If, if you're used to catastrophizing and you're used to worrying and you're a natural warrior like myself, then it's it's very easy for me to say to you, oh, don't worry about these things, and for you to say, okay, I won't. I'm sorry, it's, yeah, it's very easy for me to say that, but it's very hard for you to put it into practice. And I know this from my own experience. So, um, but just try and implement them slowly um, and at least think about them and... Um, yeah, you will see that it's just a, it's just a relief. Um, it brings a sense of relief, and with catastrophizing, especially, um, you know, write 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 down the the plausible reasons why someone hasn't replied to an email, um, and then write down the irrational reasons that you're thinking of, um, and you'll see how irrational they are. Um, And yeah, I mean, just you know, the, the the theme for mental health awareness week this year is is um, connected with nature. Um, and again, that's something I'm a big advocate for. Um, as you will have seen in my videos that I used to do, I was always out walking and always extolling the benefits of walking amongst nature, especially. Um, if you've if you're in a city then I know it's harder to find these places but um, 
we were very lucky in Bristol with plenty of green spaces around. Um, and even if it's just a local park, just just go and spend some time amongst some trees and breathe in that fresh air and talk to flowers, talk to birds. <laughs> That's what I do. And uh, yeah, it just does give you a sense of peace and harmony, which is um, yeah something that's very necessary for for maintaining that that inner peace. Um, and I know this is all a bit um, wishy-washy, and I wish I could give you more definitive answers and. Um, but it's still something that I'm, I'm very much getting accustomed to myself. And so I just wanted to sort of try and outline some of the things that I do to make myself feel better and to, to manage these day to day, um, experiences, um, and yeah, just, just, Just talk to people if you can. Talk to me if you want to, if you need to. Um, my socials are are available. Um, it's at Ginger Slim on Twitter and at Ginger Slim underscore on Instagram. My DMs are always open, and I like to think I'm a good listener and a good um, figure of support. For people who are struggling, I've I've helped quite a few people in the past when they've been in situations um, So yeah, just just remember that you're not you're not on your own. Um, and I know it's not easy to reach out for support, so if you are um, Yeah, keep keep an eye out for your friends who um, might be struggling, because yeah, it's not always easy for people to reach out um, because they might be embarrassed or or whatever reason. But yeah, so if there's people who are normally online who aren't online or who are saying things that sound a bit darker than usual, a bit more upsetting than usual, then just keep an eye out for these things and reach out to them if necessary, because that can be a massive help. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's it really. Um, and I just hope that, that you will manage to find the, the peace that you, you deserve. Um, I know it's not an easy journey, um, as you've heard from my own experience. Um, and I know that it's, you know, we can very much be our own worst enemy a lot of the time. Again, as you've heard from my own experiences. Um, but yeah, it is, it is possible to change things and, and I am the proof of that. You know, I would have, five years ago I was thinking I was, you know, I think it was all going to end soon. Um, and I, I, can't, I, I wanted it to end soon. But, um, but yeah, I've now reached a point where that's a distant memory and, and those feelings are never going to return again if I have anything to do with it. Um, and it's a constant, it's, it's a constant work, you know, it's a daily, a daily routine of, of managing these things and making sure that you're taking the care that's needed to maintain your mental balance, but it can be done and it is, it just gets easier as, as things progress in that regard. So just keep fighting, good fight and, um, and just remember that there are people out there who care and who you can talk to, regardless if they're not, you know, professionals that many of us desperately need. Um, and yeah, I know this has been a bit of a 
a muddled <laughs> a muddled uh, talk, especially towards the end. But um, yeah, I hope it's given some semblance of of clarity and hope to to some of you, and maybe shine a light on some things that weren't as apparent before. And uh, yeah, just look after yourselves. And I'm sure I'll be back next week, possibly with the um, episode I talked about last week. Um, I'll do some planning and some plotting, and, and you'll, uh, you'll see the results shortly. Um, but yeah, take care of yourselves, and, uh, and yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Peace.